Hello, you're listening to After the Homily with Father Daniel Scheidt. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Trout. How many times have you had questions after the homily? How many times have you wished that Father had spoken on this topic or maybe that topic and you thought, wouldn't it be great to just sit down with the priest and talk about those things of the day that just didn't quite make it in the homily? Well, if that's the case, then this is the podcast for you. We'll talk about topics ranging from literature to politics, from church teaching to church architecture. If it's relevant to Catholics, to their daily lives, and their journey to heaven, it's on our agenda. And whether you're on every Sunday or a Christmas and Easter or a I can't remember the last time I went to Mass Catholic, we're here and we're here for you. Father Daniel Scheid is the pastor of St. Vincent de Paul Catholic Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, in the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend. Father Dan, welcome back to your podcast, After the Homily. Great to be here, Chris. So today we're talking, you know, it's all its all about you. It's, <laughs> we're talking about the state of the, the priesthood in America and in the world. It's something that I know is on listeners' minds every Sunday. They're thinking about that as they look to their priest. But maybe we could start with just a discussion of the state of the priesthood as you see it in, in a global sense. I guess the first thing I would say is that it's precisely that invitation to take the global view that I think gets us in trouble. Uh. <laughs> because we live we live at a time in which the technologies that that we consider atmospheric, just an ordinary part of our life, are are constantly fooling us into thinking that we can have the view of God in, in a kind of comprehensive overview, whether we're talking about, you know, the situation in Ukraine and Russia or the problems of climate change or, you, I mean, just pick, yeah. pick your problem. And I think the larger the thing being studied the more tempting it is to assume a, a position of analysis that is, is really unhelpful and exaggerated. Very famously, the Catholic journalist G.K. Chesterton was asked, what's wrong with the world? It was an essay writing contest. And he just submitted uh, a single sentence in response. Uh, so, what's wrong with the world. He just wrote, I am, and, and sent that in. So I, I don't want my own life to be my only meditation on the state of the priesthood, but, but I want to begin by stating very clearly that I have been made for this moment. And into that I any of the baptized can speak that same affirmation of faith. I have been made for this moment. And because an ordained priest is, by definition, one of the baptized, every priest has to live from that fundamental affirmation, I have been made for this moment. And and to put that another way, every priest 
has to live from the truth of Christ himself saying to us, you have been made for this moment. I, I've made you as a gift from what's come before for what is to come. And within that great continuity of grace, I am who I am. The, the priesthood is what the, the priesthood is. And by we can, and, I, and then, now we can go from there. Yeah. But by saying that I'm made for this moment, by extension, are you saying, and I wasn't made for another moment 2,000 years ago or second century you know, right. Jerusalem? I was made for this moment. Right. Pope Francis, right after he was elected, I think it was his first Holy Thursday homily, and he had a great observation about priests who lose sight of being made for this moment. <laughs> and the Holy Thursday homily is often associated with the action of Christ at the Last Supper. And one action of Christ at the Last Supper is, is the institution of the, the Holy Priesthood for the, the Holy Eucharist, for the Holy People of God. And he said, a, a priest who is living outside of what the Lord has made him for either becomes a collector of antiques or novelties. And, you know, when the priest becomes a collector of antiques, he's, he's trying to, to live in a, in a world, in an age that is, is not his own. Pope John the 23rd famously said, we've not been put on this earth to guard a museum, but to cultivate a flourishing garden of life. We'll come back to that. Um, but the priest as a, as a collector of novelties, always living in some imagined future where the, the present is never good enough. Those two temptations, the, the priest as the antiquarian, the, the priest as the, the futuristic innovator, I think those two get us into trouble. But when John the 23rd says that we, we have been given the task to cultivate a flourishing garden of life, when, when you think of what a garden is, it has innumerable generations of previous fruitfulness in the soil, like <laughs> seeds that are, are years, decades, even in the case of a cherry pit, which can wait a hundred years before germinating. It's like, you know, or a century. The seeds that have the longest lifespans, I've heard of uh, date seeds in the Middle East, the lotus seed can actually wait thousands of years before germinating. So the priest draws from the garden of the church's life in the world, an ancient fruitfulness that, that actually carries the, the living historical memory and the, the organizational power. That's what a seed has, organizational power. And at the same time, they're, they're going to be in that garden, the, the necessary variations of, of life that, that are going to be the proposal for the next generations. I, I love the observation of the Kentucky farmer and essayist Wendell Berry. He has an essay that, 
that speaks of how the most creative part of his farm is exactly where the cultivated portion meets the wild. And I think in the priesthood to live at that border (laughs) where the cultivated meets the wild, another way of putting it where the church meets the world, Pope Francis will speak of going to the, the peripheries, but, but the peripheries also have to have roads that, that lead back to the center. It can't just be an endless collection of, of margins. Uh, then the center gets lost. But, but to stick with the image of the garden, because that's what the first priest, Adam, is given to cultivate, a healthy priesthood of the ordained knows that it's drawing on a life that it has received from the Lord himself as it's been lived in the church at the heart of the world for countless generations and, and a priest who gives himself to that future fruitfulness is, is doing the, the work of Christ. So, you know, listeners are, are at times I know worried about the priesthood because sure. we're, we're bombarded with reports of, of shortages and, in our area, we don't suffer like they do in some areas where parishes are closed or consolidated or, you know, poor young priests travel between five parishes. But is, is there, would you say, a mathematical shortage of ordained priests or is it exactly what it should be? That's one of those global questions that I, I'm actually not competent to answer. But in, in, a, certain, in a certain sense, the shortage is obvious and the, the shortage is critical. And we know that because the sacramental life that the ordained priesthood exists to foster is in some places just not there or, or is dying. But I think another way to look at it would be that the ordained priesthood is often reflective of the health of of the church, of the people of God in a particular place in a particular time. So in other words, we live at a time in which the family is particularly threatened. Mm, Sure. And that will have its reverberations in the life of the ordained. And in fact, I, I actually think the greatest challenge to the, the priesthood is the mechanization of human life. What do I mean by that? I mean, human agency is becoming dramatically defined in mechanistic terms. Human beings are conceived of as uh, kind of inferior computers uh, created to, conser- to, to serve this world of, of interconnected artificial intelligences. And so the forgetfulness of embodiment and the forgetfulness of the ability of lifelong commitment 
and the forgetfulness of what it is to exist in a communion of persons in a, in a real sharing of life, like an authentic brotherhood, sisterhood, you know, authentic motherhood, fatherhood. I, I think, I think the sexual confusion that characterizes the recent five to 10 years, I think is directly related to human beings conceiving their identity as a kind of ghost in a machine. And so my, my identity becomes my concentrated feelings as they exert themselves to control the material world, beginning with my reshaping of, of my body, whether I'm male, whether I'm female. And this is larger than a political issue. It's larger than a, a subset of the, the human population, for example, who thinks that it's transgender, et cetera. It very dramatically is a question that every single one of us in this historical moment has to engage, namely, what is it, what is it to be human in the midst of, of all of these machines? And we were talking before the podcast began, this recording of it, of, of your experience with, with that Amish guy. Tell us, tell us a story. Yeah, you know, the Amish, if anything, provide wonderful stories. They, they always do. And I'm blessed to get to encounter them commonly in my medical practice and have gained tremendous wisdom from some of them. But I was having a non-medical conversation with an older Amish man. And I said, you know, I'm a, I'm a Catholic. We have our issues. You're Amish. <laughs> What's, what threatens you and, and your church, your religion? What do you worry about? And he said, that thing in your hand. And uh, I had my phone in my hand. And, and I, you know, I sort of reflexively or defensively said, well, why? Well, why does... Why does that bother you? And I've forgotten the exact words he used, but it was something along the lines of, it, it lets the outside in in places where we didn't let it before. And just that idea that it something is encroaching upon what used to be a place of peace and yeah. tranquility. Yeah. The world has snuck in and it's, it's causing reverberations in their culture. And in, See, in, what I find fascinating about this is that that observation was so much more profound than just the cell phone is evil. Get rid of the cell phone. Yeah. It allowed the world into places, into my interiority, let's say, in which it didn't have the capacity to penetrate in the same way. And when you want to know what the ordained priesthood is for, and if you want to study the health of priestly life, I, I propose it is exactly there hmm. because the priest in the sacramental life of the church is the one who is caring for the body of Christ as the Lord comes to us in the Eucharist to form our interiority, caring for the body of Christ in the sacrament of reconciliation, where the Lord reclaims and restores our interiority and, and the communion of our relationships. 
the priest is there at the baptismal font to claim our humanity, not as slaves, still less as cogs in a machine, but as adopted sons and daughters of our heavenly father, sons and daughters of the king. And, and in that respect, the original priesthood of Adam takes on a particular martial role, that is to say, the role of a warrior or you know, a, a shepherd trained to fend off the wolves. The priest has to be the guardian of human interiority because as St. Augustine says, God is you know, interior intimomeo. God is more inner than my innermost. And for the priest to be at the service of fostering the interior life of his people, and back to the, the garden metaphor, the priest is at the service of, of seeding the word in the lives of, of his people and, and, of, and of cultivating that fruitfulness, stewarding it and of, of sharing it and, and actually awakening its agency so that, so that the whole household of faith, like the whole flock, all the believers— can, can realize that their interiority has been made as a blessing for all the nations. Like, go out, teach all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Know that I'm with you always till the end of the age. So the, the attention uh, to what is outside and what is inside, the priest is consecrated in the sanctuary for the sanctuary, but the sanctuary is the microcosm of the world. The, the people of God is the temple. And so a measure of the health of priestly life is the priest in the adventure of studying how his people can thrive in the life of Christ and, and how, how those interconnections in Christ can be made. If, if you permit me one final image that's been on my heart for, for some time, talked about it at our pastoral council, I, I keep thinking of the fungal kingdom. So I mean, Jesus uses plenty of references to plants, plenty of references to animals, but he promised that when he returns to the Father, we will do even greater things. And so I, in that spirit, have to speak of the fungal kingdom. Christ is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He's the King also of the fungal kingdom. You can quote me on that. And here's what it means. What we see growing out of the ground in, in odd places at odd times, the, the little mushroom cap, for example, is only the tiniest fraction of the actual organism. So uh, most of that creature is invisible. It's, it's microscopic. It's, it's a hidden connectivity that, that can extend over miles. And when I think of what a healthy Catholic parish looks like. So in the case of St. Vincent's, we're the largest parish in our diocese, 
12,000 souls, 3,700 families. When I think of what health looks like, what it, what it needs to look like, I can't help but think of each and every one of those 12,000 lives being interconnected through Christ, with Christ, in Christ, for Christ, with, with just innumerable people. And those connections are going to happen from the heart of the church, from the heart of the sacramental life of the church. But, but that's just the beginning of the great sending out and the great spreading. Um, I think the, the worry that people have is that in vast stretches of the church today, um, things appear to be shrinking. Mm -hmm. Rather than growing, they appear to be dying. And when Pope Benedict, for example, prophesied as early as the 1950s that the church of the future would be smaller, it would be more intentional, it would be more purely focused on what's essential Joseph Ratzinger, the future Pope Benedict, was not being defeatist. He, he was speaking of a greater concentration, a consolidation in view of a further, later spread uh, that would go even deeper, even farther. So this, this, um, this movement of, of contraction and growth, dying and rising, mm-hmm seems to be the, the very nature of, of the life of Christ itself. And the fact that for growth to be catalyzed, it can be as simple as one person catalyzing, shaping a whole communion of persons. This gives us tremendous hope because each one of us, here I speak not just for the ordained, but for all the baptized, each and every one of us has the capacity in Christ to be a, a transformative blessing on just innumerable lives in ways that are beyond our calculation or control. That's what we live from. You know, if you were, if you were cast back in time to some of your predecessors and mentors, do you think they would have a different view of their priesthood than you do now generations later? I suspect, and I, again, you're asking a very general question, and I'll 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 take the bait and I'll I'll give the general answer. I actually think virtually all priests at virtually all times in the history of the church have marveled at how small the number of faithful clergy, faithful faithful, are in relation to the daunting task the Lord has given. And so I think the invitation, indeed the command of faith is daunting, but, but invigorating. It's, it's, it's the great adventure, the, the go out. For much of the church's history, the lack of worldly stability, in, you know, in terms of basic health, in terms of, political uh, peacefulness in terms of persecution of the church. I, I just think st- 
stability and easy growth and lots of new building projects, <laughs> I think is more the exception rather than the rule. I read a number of years back the biography of the founder of the Knights of Columbus, Father Michael McGivney, and the title of the book is called Parish Priest. And if I might inflict a paragraph or two on you, this gets to the heart of our question. In March 1886, Father McGivney received news of the type that was tragically familiar in his life in the church. Another friend in the priesthood was dead. It was Father Lawler was also his brother-in-law. As pastor of St. Mary's in New Haven, Patrick Lawler had been consistently encouraging to McGivney. At only 45, and after four years of illness, Father Lawler finally succumbed to what was described as, quote-unquote, brain congestion. Most parishioners, and even some printed obituaries, attributed the death more specifically to worry over St. Mary's debt. Michael McGivney attended the funeral and the sight of him back in New Haven made many people predict that he would soon return him to his former church in the role of pastor, but that was not to be. Perhaps the bishop just didn't have the heart to ask another priest to take over St. Mary's. It seemed to be tantamount to a death sentence. As the diocese was well aware, in the 1880s, parish priests did not generally live very long under any circumstances. From 1874 to 1886, the Hartford Diocese counted about 83 priests at any one time. Yet during that same span, 70 diocesan priests died. That translates to a turnover of almost 85% in a dozen years. Going into the priesthood, young men knew that they had little chance of reaching 50 years of age and almost no hope of reaching 70. One reason was exposure to disease, but Protestant ministers presumably made the same sorts of calls on the ill and destitute. Plenty of ministers lived to celebrate their Silver Jubilees in Connecticut in the late 19th century. The plain fact is that priests were trapped in a vicious circle. They were overworked because there were not enough priests to serve a Catholic population that had long since grown past 150,000 in the state of Connecticut. The short span of the average priest led to even more work for those who were left, and that started the cycle all over again. So I, I that was the 1800s, and I recount that for a few reasons. First of all, each time is always the critical time. This is the time of decision. Each time in the church's history is always going to be faced with the little, the little person, the little community in relation to the great need. Every period in history is going to require martyrdom. That is to say, the witness in everything, with everything of one's whole life. I think of the the men who studied at the time of the English Reformation. And they studied to cross the channel, knowing that they would be captured, tortured, executed, and their bones would be returned to the seminary chapel at the Venerable English College in Rome, where they studied, and the cycle would repeat. And, you know, my problems and challenges in relation to that, <laughs> uh, not, as, not as big. But again, before our, our podcast, you mentioned just a, a basic worry of, of people. And if you can 
repeat that. Well, I think you the know, person who goes to confession and <laughs> yeah, bless me, Father. Yeah, you say, bless me, Father. Uh, you know, I'm weak in my faith. I'm worried about the future of the church. Is it going to crash? And you know, I can envision the the priest saying, you know, shame on you. How could you be so weak? And it's very clear in the Gospels that. You know, Jesus says the gates of hell aren't going to prevail against the church. Why are you worried about a little debt in that example or or whatever problem, worldly issue that we might be facing? And I get that, but I think at the same time it's easy to feel, well, I'm just being fatalistic if I just say the church will be fine. Right. Um, Peter will prevail. He always does. Yes. Um, but it happens to be true, doesn't it? The Lord will remain faithful. Both so sociologists like Philip Jenkins, as well as uh, churchmen like Cardinal Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, have made the observation that Christ promised that the gates of hell won't prevail over the church. That's true in a universal sense, but that's no guarantee that any given local church mm. will necessarily survive mm. for a particular through a particular period of time. So and he doesn't I, say what it's going to look like. Correct. So, yeah, I have a lot of friends of mine from seminary who serve on the East Coast and the situation of the church there, I mean, just the, the dead zones that exist, it's just radically mm. different than what, what I experience in our diocese. I mean, there are commonalities. But I, I would say this as a very studied reason for hope. I am convinced that the gifts the Lord is giving to the church in this time, and we can point, for example, to the papacy of John Paul II in the, the new evangelization and the good fruit that has come from that, especially the reunion of Christians with uh, congregations and various Protestant ministers entering the Catholic church, bringing the spiritual and communal richness of what they've lived, uh, bringing that into the heart of the Catholic church. That is amazing. When I think of Pope Benedict's teaching papacy and the, the whole body of work that that pre-existed his election to the See of Peter, I also marvel at, at the richness of cultural engagement of, of the gospel with the world that we'll be drawing on for decades. At a more fine-grained level in terms of seminary formation, I actually think the structures have grown into place over the past I would say perhaps 15 years to be very intentional about promoting health exactly where it's needed. Mm -hmm. And if you want me to get more specific about that, I'll sum it up in the word brotherhood. Oh. I find in the, the men being ordained in these recent years, not only a hunger and thirst for the fraternal life, but an active planning for it, requesting of it, and models of its being lived to draw on. So in a, if I, I don't want to coin a new term prematurely, but it has the, the certain feel of a type of 
new monasticism in the life of diocesan clergy. By that, I mean a seeking of the Lord together with one's brother priests mm. for the sake of the world. Mm. So the, the monastery here would not be self-enclosed fortress keeping the world out. Rather, it would be the center of civilization around which culture grows. So I, the seminaries that I've visited in recent years are quite attentive to cultivating this deeper fraternal life that is going to help priests share what St. Paul VI called the church being an expert in humanity. I think the priesthood at its best in the years ahead will have the, the riches of, of the common life to offer the world. And, and here I speak autobiographically. The most important, decisive, life-changing seminary experience that I had was the summer that I spent at my current parish, St. Vincent de Paul. I was assigned here as a seminarian. And what, what rocked my world and transformed it was the network of small Christian communities in this parish. So I, I got to see lived in the homes of the parishioners, this coming together in small groups, little, little groups of families, an intentional living of the Christian life. And I knew that that's what I want, wanted my priesthood to serve. That is worth giving my life for. Mm. I recognize Christ there. And I, I think as institutional structures continue to disintegrate around us. So when one thinks of the Catholic school system that was built to serve the waves of, of immigrants to our country against the, the anti-Catholic sentiment and the, the secularism of the age. When one thinks of the vast Catholic healthcare networks, mm -hmm. the, the hospitals that, that grew up in the 19th century, 20th century, the, the universities, Catholic universities, as those institutions in certain visible forms disintegrate, what emerges is, is something smaller, but no less intentionally Catholic. So I, I'm thinking here of the small startup schools, Catholic universities, who want to be Catholic to the core. That seem to be flourishing. Yes. I think of like the Damascus Youth Summer Camp, sure. where you have middle schoolers, high schoolers, college-age missionaries, college graduates dedicating a period of their life to missionary work and the good that comes from that. I think of initiatives like the Institute for Priestly Formation, which I teach, just entirely dedicated to 
forming, serving the full humanity of, of future priests. And those I, I just find so deeply inspiring. And when you add to that the resources for the study of scripture or the um, what's coming out of presses like Ignatius Press these days or even Ave Maria Press, it's just so heartening. Mm-hmm. There's like so much goodness and I don't want to create another viral phrase, but the, the free range Catholic, <laughs> you know, chickens that are cooped up in the institution and just fed corn produce what they produce from disease to tasteless, <laughs> um, diminished uh, in nutrition eggs. Free range chickens, which forage on goodness and live a more precarious existence, they live the better lives mm. and they produce the better eggs. And I, I just think, I think we're living in the age of the free range Catholic <laughs> who is, is going to be drawing more directly on the deepest sources of the tradition, scripture, and is actually going to be in a position to help the shepherds and their shepherding. I remember hearing Cardinal Francis George, the former Archbishop of Chicago of happy memory. He was once asked, you know, how do you, how do you shepherd a flock as large as your archdiocese and with, you know, as many problems as you have, et cetera, et cetera. And he just responded, I'm just always on the lookout for the saints and I, I do what I can to support them in everything. Hmm. And that vision of, of being a priest, of just looking for the ones who are most on fire with the things of God, with the heart of Christ, and, and serving that and allowing that fire to spread, that, that just strikes me as so profoundly good and so deeply faithful to the church's beginnings and it, it actually takes the pressure off. I don't have to be primarily the, you know, the CEO of, of the, the big organization. And I, I found that people's generosity will respond to the, the vision that's laid out. And, and if people's spiritual agency is taken seriously, they, they will rise to the occasion and more. Well, as we as we close this episode, I think you've already answered this question, but I'll I'll ask it again. But you know, to the to the fifteen, sixteen, seventeen year old young man whose mother may listen to us <laughs> and force him to listen, if if there's even an inkling in his heart that maybe he'd be interested in the in the priesthood, what specifically do you say to him? Before I say anything to him, I study the age. The current research suggests that it's around 13 or 14 years old where Catholics make the decision of whether they are going to continue practicing the faith or not. Mm. It happens that early. And that shouldn't surprise us because with the onset of adolescence is the emergence of of one's adult agency and, and the powers of, of becoming a, 
a wife or a husband, a mm. mother or a father. And so I, I would say to that young man that the Lord has put into your heart, into your whole self, a husbandry and a fatherhood that is deeper than you can imagine. And that, that husbandry and fatherhood is certainly deeper than your sin, whatever <laughs> it is. And you are part of um, a communion of persons, a great family of faith. And let me connect you with those lives that, that are in love with the Lord most passionately and see what happens with you. So I would actually want to introduce that young man to the best husbands and fathers mm. that I know, the, the healthiest families that I know. I'd also want him to study the lives of the, the happiest, healthiest, holiest priests that I know. I'd, I'd want to connect him just in his reading with resources to, to help him beyond just the, the people that he sees. So I think of somebody like Fulton Sheen in his writings on the priesthood, his, his videos. I think of biography of somebody like a father, Capon, where you have you know, real priestly uh, heroism lived in, uh, in the heart of war. I think of Father Augustine Weta, W-E-T-T-A's new book on discernment just came out. I think of Father Brett Brannon's book, To Save a Thousand Souls. So these would be some, mm. some resources, but I actually think Jesus's invitation says it all. Come and see. And I think whether it's uh, the Damascus Youth Summer Camp experience, something along those lines, or different retreats that are put on in our diocese for young men who have the prospect of becoming good priests. I think that's the way. And if I could just share with you one thing that I did when I was newly ordained and I was teaching at Marion High School, every year I would identify 12 guys who I thought had the potential to be really good priests. <laughs> and I contacted each of them. And I just said to them, I think that you have what it takes to be a really good husband and father. And because of that, really good like, spiritual husband and father. And mm -hmm. so I'd, I'd like to form this group called the 12. And our whole purpose is just going to be doing hidden great things with a sense of creative adventure. And oh, by the way, I'm not going to tell you what these things are. You're going to have to just receive them in your prayer and do them. And then we'll just report back. You can only imagine what that conversation must have been like. Oh, it was, it was <laughs> just wonderful. And so they would do these just wonderful, good things for other people and get together and we'd, we'd talk it through. And more than one priestly vocation has emerged wow. from that group. Think of... Father Christopher Brennan of the Congregation of Holy Cross. I think of Father Daniel McShane of the Diocese of Peoria. And 
I, I just think if, if we can see the priest as less a creature of the institution and more of a kind of a free range evangelizer who is constantly formed by and proposing the, the very sacramental life of the church. So that gives mm -hmm. it its priestly specificity. I think we're, we're then furthering the good work and that will always attract good, healthy, holy, happy young women who will also discover the possibilities of their lifelong consecrations. But that'll be the topic for another podcast. <laughs> well, I believe this is episode number 10. And for the first time, I'm disappointed that we don't have video because I wish listeners could see your expression when you began talking about the young priest and Damascus and similar organizations because... There's a brightness in your smile and in your eyes that, that certainly gives an old guy like me a lot of hope. And if we don't end the podcast now, the tears coming from my eyes are going to fall on the microphone and short <laughs> us out. Tears of joy. I'm so grateful, Chris, for your uh, initiative in, in starting this up. Well, thank you for another episode, Father. Beautiful. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of After the Homily as much as we've enjoyed bringing it to you. And I hope you'll plan to join us regularly for future episodes. Are there topics you'd like to hear about from Father Dan? Do you have questions that you'd like answered? If so, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at church at saintv.org and type After the Homily in the subject line. Or you can message me directly, 260-450-8878 and start the message with After the Homily. And a special thanks to our friends at Redeemer Radio and Spoke Street Media for producing this podcast. You can enjoy an endless variety of amazing Catholic content by visiting spokestreet.com. I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, and thanks again for listening to After the Homily with Father Daniel Scheidt. is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.